How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in fellowship. We, um, scripture says if we confess our sins, which is pretty simple, it just means to admit or acknowledge that we've committed certain sins and God promises to forgive us of those sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we recover fellowship and we can move forward in our Christian life until we sin again. For some people, that's short. So we try to keep short accounts so we can stay in fellowship. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to be reminded of these eternal truths, to be refreshed because we focus upon your word, and we're reminded that whatever is going on in our lives, that that which has eternal value is what's important, and that we need to focus on you and rest in you and claim your promises, and as we go forward in our spiritual life, that we know that you are guiding and directing us. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, you'll help us to think through the uh, topics, doctrines that we study, that we may be well-informed believers, that we might understand your word more clearly and be able to think more precisely about our salvation and our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in the last paragraph here of Romans 13, and this is one of those paragraphs that is just loaded with important doctrine. And so as we get into it, uh, we need to address a, ba- a couple of basic um, basic topics, and I want to cover the whole paragraph tonight, even though I don't think we'll get much beyond our understanding of verse verse 11. Verses 12 through 14 are loaded with some key terms, and because of what Paul says here, in comparison with similar passages in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, Galatians 4, Colossians 3, and as well as uh, James 1, James 1, Hebrews 12, and 1 Peter 2, we have a lot of work to do in just putting that together because it's crucial for understanding the spiritual life. So the first verse is probably as far as we get today, but I want us to understand the context. Paul begins by saying, and do this, this is a New King James translation, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. All right, I want to start with verse 11. It's probably as far as we'll get today. 
Verse 11 reads, and do this. You'll notice in your English text that the do is in italics. That means it's not in the original, and it's supplied by a translator because according to the translator's understanding of the text, that's what makes sense to him in terms of trying to make the passage read a little more clearly and understandably to to the reader. Uh, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. This is a motivational verse. It's to challenge us to realize that we're living in a period of time that is going to disappear at some point. The doctrine of imminency is clearly behind this passage. Jesus could come at any moment. So we need to be prepared and we need to be ready. And we need to recognize that as each day goes by, and almost 2,000 years have gone by since Paul wrote this, but as each day goes by, we do get closer to the rapture. We don't know when it will be. It could be tonight. It could be next week. It could be in 20 years, 100 years. It could be in 200 years. Personally, I think it's a bit closer than that, but we don't know. There have been a lot of people who have studied prophecy over the, over the years, especially the last 150 years, who believe that they were in the rapture generation. Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Terminal Generation when he was about 40 years younger, thinking that he would be in the rapture generation. He might be because he hasn't been taken to be with the Lord yet. But people like Dwight Pentecost, who died a little over a month ago, uh, people like Dr. John Walvoord, certainly previous generation like Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, many people have thought that they were seeing various things uh, being fulfilled in their lifetime and that the return of the Lord was very, very near, and that they would probably live to see the rapture, and they didn't. So we can't get distracted by that. Uh, just because it seems that way doesn't mean it is that way. And I've heard this comment from a lot of people. I think there are some people, um, maybe we'll call it a senior syndrome. They know that, uh, I see believers as they get a little more mature and a little older, realize that the things of this life aren't as significant as the things that continue into eternity. And I think that uh, this is a good thing. We all yearn for the fact that that it's not long and we'll leave all of the, these mortal things behind us and we'll be in heaven with the Lord. But we need to realize that uh, as much as we might wish for the rapture to occur tomorrow, it probably won't. It might. So we need to be prepared. Think about this. If you knew, because of something your doctor said, that you had three years to live, plus or minus, but that you were terminal. We're all terminal. We just don't know that it's that short. And that you just had a short time. How would you live your life differently? Now, if you have an answer to that, that is that is significant that you would truly live your life differently, then you need to really take that before the Lord because we should live each day as if the Lord's going to come back tomorrow. Live each day in preparation for for that state, knowing that we have to be ready if the Lord comes tomorrow, 
but that we have to plan and still live our lives as if he will not come until long after our passing. So this way, some people have made the mistake of not not saving for their uh, retirement, not saving for the future, because they're just so convinced the Lord's going to come back. And then wait a minute, all of a sudden the Lord didn't come back, and now they need to retire and they don't have anything uh, to take care of them in their retirement. So there's a certain uh, bit of tension that's there for us. So we are living in a time, uh, as this passage says, a time of darkness. We are to live as children of life, of light, and our ultimate salvation, which comes uh, at the end of this life, is nearer each day than it's ever been before. Now, <clears throat> Paul uses this to motivate us that we need to be aware of this And this should spur us on to greater obedience today, a greater sense of intensity about our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. Now, he starts off, and he says, literally, it reads in the Greek, and this. So he's adding something to what he has said before. In verses 8 through 9, which we looked at last time, the focus was on loving one another. Verse 8, as we saw, oh, no one, anything isn't talking about money. It's talking, it's an idiom for don't create a spiritual indebtedness with someone. In other words, don't sin against another, but instead love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's reflected and repeated in verse 10. Love does, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And this... So he's adding something else, love one another, and then, and this also. But he doesn't really give a a command here until we get a little further on in in this section. So the sense of do is possibly there, but it's really he's just adding a next exhortation, and this. And we have the word knowing the time, which is the... Uh, Greek word oida, and it's in a perfect tense, which means this is a completed action. So it means that, that it's something that they've known for a while. They've already known this. They've been taught this. They understand these principles fully, and he's reminding of this. And it, as a participle, it would be a, a causal, uh, causal participle and should be translated with the sense, because you already know the time. And the word there translated time is a word we ran into on Tuesday night when we started the dispensation series. It's one of the key words related to dispensations. It's the word kairos, which has to do with demarcating a time or a season in God's plan for the ages. It indicates an age or an era uh, that is marked out by certain boundaries. And so what Paul is saying here is because you know the time, because you understand God's plan for the ages, because you understand where you are within that plan, that we're in the church age, and that there's no specific prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in the church age in order for the rapture to come, to come we need to be ready at any, at any moment. And so he's referring in general to the imminent return of the Lord as a motivation for the spiritual life. He says it's, it's um, because you know the time, 
it is time. It's not really high time. That's more of a of a um, editorial or interpretation, an editorial interpretation of this phrase. It is now time. It's in, indicating priority. It is now time to awake out of sleep, and this is the the, the word translated to awake is the aorist uh, passive infinitive of a gyro, and it means to wake up, uh, to become alert out of a time of sleep. Now, the term for sleep in the New Testament is usually used uh, as an idiom. There are times when the word is used literally of those who have uh, fallen, uh, fallen asleep, such as Eutyches, who's famous because he fell asleep in the middle of one of the Apostle Paul's sermons and fell out of a window and may have killed himself. In the, it's not sure in the text, but Paul certainly revived him one way or the other. And waking up out of sleep, so you have sleep referring to literal sleep. You have sleep refer, referring as a euphemism when a believer dies he, it's not that he goes into soul sleep. That's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine, and maybe a few other hold to that. It's not that you go through a period of soul sleep, because we know that at the time of death we're immediately absent from the body face to face with the Lord, but the body is, as it were, waiting. It is not over with. That's part of the importance of Christian doctrine, is that which uh, remains of our corporeal body is going to be brought back together, and is going to be the foundation for our resurrection body. That's the pattern. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he rose from the dead, and remember when Mary and Martha and later Peter and John ran into the tomb, they didn't see a past body, and then Jesus had a new body. The body that he had had in his mortal flesh was what was transformed into his immortal body. Now, there are some people, just in case you've never run into this, actually, I didn't run into this until about 10 years ago. I uh, ne- had never heard this from other Christians, and but there are some Christians who believe that the implication of that, now that's a key word is implication, because an implication is not a command. An implication is not an imperative. It's simply uh, possibly an implication, uh, a suggestion maybe, that in Christianity, the body is valued. In Platonism, the body wasn't valued. In other religions, the body is not of any value. And there are those who believe that because the body has value in Christianity, that you should not, uh, you should not be cremated. And I don't believe that's true, but I base my argument on what happens at, at death. When we look over history... When you think of the tens of thousands of Christians who were killed in battles, uh, Christian settlers who were pushing west in the American frontier who were slaughtered uh, by Indians and just left out on the plains uh, to, for their bodies to deteriorate, and eventually the winds and the animals just took their remains to the four corners of the earth, when you think of those who've been lost at sea and their bodies just deteriorated uh, within the oceans, when you think of those who have been uh, blown literally to atoms in various explosions in warfare, there are all kinds of people whose bodies are just, they they go from ashes to ashes and dust to dust, 
and they are atomized, and their molecules are scattered all over the earth. But we have an omnipotent God who's an omniscient God who can pull all of that back together again. And when you think about how many people whose bodies have been in the ground for, the th- for three or four or 5,000 years who are believers, and there's nothing left of those bodies in those graves. Everything has decomposed and has disappeared. This idea that, that well, if, you cre- if you're cremated, that somehow that, that is dishonoring the body, uh, it just isn't convincing to me that that is a valid argument. If For some people, I think that fits the area of doubtful things. If that's something that that somebody believes is important, then that's fine. But I don't think that's something that uh, should be imposed upon others. First time I ran across this, a friend of mine was going through seminary about 12 years ago, and he had a theology professor who actually taught that it was uh, sinful to be cremated. And I don't, I just don't think that faces, you know, real. I understand his theological argument. I understand the fact that this is a way of honoring, honoring the body that God created. And it is in Christianity, it is this mortal flesh that becomes transformed into our immortal body. How that happens, I don't know. But there is a, there is some sort of, of, uh, continuance between this body and the next body. Uh, I don't know how that happens, but that's the pattern that we see with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, the term sleep is used as a euphemism for that body until it is resurrected. And we see the picture of that resurrection in the uh, fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians when the Lord returns from heaven and the and even though the uh, immaterial body and the, I mean, the immaterial soul and the interim body of the church age believer is with the Lord, his material body, his corporeal body that gets transformed into his resurrection body, it raises for the dead in Christ will rise first. That's talking about that corporeal body. It will be resurrected, and it will be transformed into a new body, a resurrection body, uh, an immortal body that is then joined with the soul of the resurrected, raptured, uh, uh, resurrected believer. Or excuse me, that is that with the with the believer who is with the Lord, and that is when the those who have died first, those who have died in Christ, will uh, be reunited with a with their resurrection body. That's when they receive their resurrection body as at that point at the rapture. So there's a specific continuity that's emphasized in Scripture between our present uh, mortal body and our future immortal body. And that interim period is referred to as sleep. Um, Paul uses that same terminology in First Thessalonians um, for uh, 13 and following, it says, we shall not all sleep. Um, so he uses that, in, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's first taken out of context and put over a lot of nurseries. Uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So this is, um, 
but this is important. So the word sleep here is not used as a euphemism for those who have died physically. It's not used to refer to physical, literal physical sleep, but it is used as a, as a figure of speech for those who are not actively engaged in living their spiritual life today. They are just in uh, going through the motions or perhaps they have slipped back into carnality and they need to awaken spiritually. They need to get back in fellowship and they need to move forward because you don't know how much time is left. And even if the rapture doesn't occur tomorrow, a massive automobile accident might occur tomorrow. A massive cardiac arrest may occur tomorrow. A major stroke might occur tomorrow. Any number of things may occur tomorrow that are the end of, of, of this particular life. And so we always have to be ready. And so this is the background for Paul's motivation here. Because you know the time, referring to the church age and this dispensation, that now it is time to awake out of sleep and he used the same metaphors used in other places. Therefore, uh, we see in Ephesians 5.14, Paul says, Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. Again, he's doing the same thing. Wake up, focus on your spiritual life, and grow to uh, spiritual maturity. Arise from the dead. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not talking about spiritual death here. He's talking about believers who have slipped into carnality, and that's one way in which the term dead is used in Scripture is to refer to those who are uh, no longer living their spiritual life. There are seven different ways in which the Bible talks about death. The first three are fairly obvious, physical death sp- and spiritual death and eternal death. Those are obvious. The ones that aren't obvious are positional death. When we become a believer, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, there is a sexual death that takes place as uh, someone gets older. This t- way, this death is used that way to refer to Abraham uh, when he was older. Uh, we also have a phrase, a carnal death, which just means that you're out of fellowship and you're living as if you're an unbeliever. And then there's death that is uh, the result of the sin unto death. It's a more of a, a longer period of carnality uh, that ends with, uh, with sin unto death. So Paul is using the term here in Ephesians 5.14, like one who is dead, uh, they're alive spiritually, but they're Uh, As someone once facetiously said, they're the dead in Christ. They're saved, but they're acting like they have no new life in Christ. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter uses a slightly different vocabulary. Rather than saying awake, he says be sober. Which has this, and be vigilant, which has the same idea. Wake up, be alert, uh, be, cl- think clearly and objectively. That's what be sober means. It doesn't mean, you know, dry out and quit being drunk. It means to think uh, objectively uh, and be vigilant, to be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So there are continuous injunctions in Scripture to wake up, be alert, be watchful, uh, because the time is short. And then Paul goes on to explain this 
in verse, uh, uh, the next phrase of verse 11, the word for indicates an explanation. He says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The word translated salvation here is the noun form, soteria, which refers often to physical deliverance, a preservation from some sort, a physical disaster. It indicates rescue and deliverance in the sense of averting some danger, threatening life. And a lot of passages, it's not referring to justification. It's referring to the final process of salvation, our glorification. Passages such as Hebrews 9.28. Take a look at this. He says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, that would apply to those who are awake and alert, looking forward to Christ's return. He will appear a second time apart from sin. That means the first time he he appeared with reference to sin and paying the penalty of sin. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That's clearly talking about a future, our future final salvation. First Peter uses it this way in, in uh, two passages. In First Peter 1, he says, uh, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. So present tense, we're being kept by the power of God. It's God's power that keeps us saved. We can't lose our salvation because God is the one who saved us. If God saved us, we can't do anything to lose it. If you do anything to keep your salvation, then you somehow thought that there was something you did to get your salvation. Anyone who teaches that you can lose your salvation somewhere hidden away, they have a a presupposition there that you're doing something to get your salvation. Works is always hiding somewhere in the background if someone can do something to lose their salvation. Because God did everything for us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us, paid the penalty for our sins, and he is the one, once we believe in Christ, he saves us, he regenerates us, he justifies us, he's the one who does all of these things. It's done through faith. We believe, but it is not the belief that saves us. It is God who regenerates, God who imputes righteousness, God who justifies. It's God who saves and he's the one who keeps us for a future event known as salvation. First Peter 1 Peter 1.9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, so you trust in Christ as Savior, and the end result is the salvation of your souls. It's applied to something future after justification. So just a reminder and reflection here in terms of our chart related to the three different stages of salvation. In phase one, we are justified. This takes place in a moment in time. When you believe Jesus died on on the cross for your sins, when you believe that, you're saved from the penalty of sin, and this is called positional sanctification at this point. You are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and set apart to him forever. In phase two, which starts immediately after at the point of our new birth, 
we have a new life and we begin to grow. That is called progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. And it is uh, saved is used in this sense to be saved from the power of sin. So some of us were saved 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. All of us are being saved. You are being saved this morning. You're being saved now. You're going to be saved tomorrow. We're being saved over and over again in this second sense. And in the third sense, in terms of our ultimate sanctification, we haven't been saved yet, but we will be saved eventually when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord in glorification. That is how Paul is using the term salvation here, that our salvation, that's a future event, our salvation, uh, that is our phase three glorification, is nearer than when we first believed. Now notice uh, the word first is in italics. That means it's not in the original. It is supplied by the translator to make it the verse, the sentence make more sense in the English. And it's clear from the grammar of the verb, it's an aorist active indicative of pistuo or pistevo, and it means to believe or to trust. Aorist tense simply means it occurred at some time in the past without reference to its duration, its length, or any other factor. It's just stating a uh, 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 stating it simply as an event that took place uh, in past time. And so for all of us here, as I look around the room, we've all been saved. We've all trusted Christ as our Savior at some time in the past. And so with each second, the return of Christ is nearer than it was yesterday. In the morning, it will be nearer than it is today. It's always getting nearer. So this is all that Paul is saying, and this relates to uh, the doctrine of imminency. Let me explain something simple about imminency. Imminency means that Jesus' return can be at any moment. It could be today, tomorrow, next week, whenever. Imminent does not mean soon coming. There's a difference. It may not be. It certainly wasn't. If it meant soon coming, then Paul was in trouble because it's been almost 2,000 years. Paul thought it could happen in his lifetime. He had no sense that the church age would last for 2,000 years. No indication of that. Uh, Many of us think, as I said earlier, that it could happen in our lifetime, and that certainly is, is possible. We're getting closer every single day. What imminency tells us is that there's no specific prophecy that must be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns for the church. I want you to pay attention to what I'm getting ready to say. There's a difference between between saying no prophecy needs to be fulfilled for the rapture to occur and the statement no prophecy will occur before the rapture. No prophecy needs to occur for the rapture to take place. But that's, that doesn't mean no prophecy will take place because subsequent to the rapture, there'll be a transition period. Could be a few days, few weeks, few months, 
before the final period of the age of Israel, known as Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period known as a tribulation, that that takes place. There's a What starts the tribulation is the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, as identified in Daniel 7, I mean Daniel 9, 24 to 28. It's that signing of the peace treaty that starts the countdown for that last seven-year period. But there are certain things that seem to need to be in place for the Daniel 70th week to transpire. If, if the Antichrist is going to enter into a covenant with God's people, there needs to be some sort of governmental body of the Jewish people who can sign this peace treaty and enter into this peace treaty. That suggests that that there will be some sort of nation that is restored that can sign that peace treaty. Now, the the fact that there is a nation back in Israel today suggests that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. God said that he would restore them uh, to the land. But see, if this, if we're going to say, and I'm not saying this, but if you're going to say that the return of the Jews to the land is a fulfillment of prophecy, that doesn't have anything to do with the nearness of the rapture. It's a fulfillment of prophecy in terms of it setting the stage for the uh, for the seven years of the tribulation. And just because the stage is starting to get set doesn't mean that Christ's return at the rapture is soon coming. It just means that the stage is being set and we're seeing the, the things come into place that need to be in place for the events that transpire after the rapture. But it doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. They're two separate things. There is prophecy related to the, uh, related to the tribulation. Whether or not that occur- fulfillment of any of those prophecies takes place before the rapture is not, does not determine the timing of the rapture is what I'm trying to say. So there's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in relation to the rapture, but some prophecy related to what happens after the rapture might come to pass before the rapture. doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. We have to keep that, uh, that definitely straight. In Isaiah 11.11 says that God is going to restore the Jewish people to Israel a second time, and this in context occurs at the end of the tribulation. He's going to restore them from all over the earth, from from the four corners of the earth. Now, that indicates that there are going to be no more than two worldwide restorations of the Jewish people. The second worldwide restoration is a restoration of Jews who are saved at the end of the tribulation. But the first worldwide return occurred when? What, 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 when might that be? Was that in, in 538 when you had about 40,000, 45,000 return with Zerubbabel from um, Persia? No. They didn't, that was number one, that wasn't a worldwide return. Number two, it was small. And it, and even at the time of Christ, you didn't have a majority of Jews living in the world who lived in Israel. 
Today we have about 48 to 49% of Jews in the world live in Israel. There hasn't been that large a group of Jews living in the land since before the northern kingdom was taken out in 722. And so this is clearly unique and clearly distinct. It has prophetic significance because never before has this happened. It's a worldwide return. The returns that we saw in the Old Testament leading up to the uh, uh, first, first century and the coming of Jesus as Messiah was not a worldwide return. It was a partial return that never really amounted to more than about 25% of world, worldwide Jewry. So at that time, uh, it was a small return. It was necessary so that there would be a nation there the Messiah could come to. And so what we see is that today it certainly seems like f- prophecy related to the events after the rapture are being fulfilled. But some people you'll hear are saying, well, see, that means the rapture is around the corner. doesn't mean that. It just means that things are getting ready for what's going to happen after the rapture, but that may not come about. Some people have said, well, the Jews could be driven back into the, into the ocean 50, 100 times before the end times. Well, not according to Isaiah 11, 11. It says there's only going to be two returns. And what, what the Scriptures teach is that there are two returns, one in apostasy. That's what's necessary to set up a nation at the beginning of the tribulation, and one in spiritual, uh, when they're spiritually regenerate, which is what occurs at the end of that tribulation uh, period. So we understand from this verse that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, but we don't know when that will occur. It will occur at any moment, so we need to be ready. Now, the last thing that we read here is this word believed, and I want to take the rest of the time tonight to talk about this issue of belief because there's a lot of confusion about the nature of belief, and there's a lot of debate about uh, the nature of belief. And so I just want to cover this in about 10 points and make some some points that uh, you need to think about a little bit. In terms of some introductory issues, what you'll often hear from people is that there are different kinds of faith. There's saving faith and there's non-saving faith. What they mean by this is that you can believe in Jesus, but you haven't, you're not saved. It's not a saving faith. They treat saving faith as a special kind of faith that is different from all other faith. You and I express faith in many things every day. We have faith in our spouses. We have faith in our children. We have uh, faith in that when we get up in the morning, we'll go out and sit in our cars and we'll turn, put the key in the ignition and the car will start. Now and then we're a little disappointed when it doesn't, but we believe when we get out of bed that everything's going to work out all right. Uh, that's, that's faith. It's the object of faith, we believe, that makes a difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. But there are many Christians who believe that the faith that saves is a supernatural faith. It's a faith that's given to us by God, and it's not the same as everyday faith. So we need to address the question, is there a faith in Christ that saves and a faith in Christ that doesn't save? Another issue in faith is whether faith is rational or irrational. You often hear people say, 
Well, that's a matter of faith, and we're going to separate that religion into one sphere, but this is a matter of science, as if knowledge, the knowledge of science is categorically different from the knowledge of faith. The Bible says that the knowledge of faith is, is inherent to everything. It's what you believe. You may believe wrong things, but, but faith is a form of knowledge. It is not, uh, it is not antithetical to knowledge, neither is it antithetical to reason. So we have to address that particular issue. Also, it's not infrequent for pastors and theologians and others to talk about the difference between a so-called head faith and a heart faith. What they usually try to do is say, well, you can't just assent to the gospel. You have to commit. You have to, uh, you have to repent of your sins. You have to do all of these other things that real faith is commitment. But faith doesn't mean commitment. Faith means belief. If, um, if you, um, a commitment may be something secondary, but it's not the main idea. If you are adding up a column of numbers and you have added that column of numbers and you've reached your, your sum and you go back and you double and triple check your figures and you believe that you have reached an accurate answer, uh, you believe that. Uh, you're, you, you haven't necessarily made a commitment to it, uh, but you believe it. You agree that it is true. That's what faith means. Hard faith is simply another way, a figure of speech the Bible uses to talk about uh, belief with your head. Your head is where your brain is located. You believe with your brain, and uh, heart is just a synonym, as we'll see, uh, for the brain. Now, we get into this passage or this issue related to faith as we're talking about in this passage when we when we're saved especially in the gospel of john the gospel of john is a great great place to go to for this because the gospel of john uses this verb it doesn't ever use the noun but it uses the verb 98 times at least in the greek text that that i used in uh in the uh, software program accordance and uh, 98 times you have the verb believe. It's never qualified by an adverb. You never have it. The scripture says if you genuinely believe, if you truly believe, if you believe with a whole heart, if you believe with your heart and not your head, there's no qualification anywhere in John in these 98 uses of John uh, that adds something to faith to separate it from and a, a, a faith that doesn't save. In John 20, 30, and 31, verse 20, 31 is one that is very familiar to you, but the context in verse 30 is very important. Verse 30 says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now there are eight signs that Jesus performed that John records in the Gospel of John. The eighth and final sign is the resurrection. There was one disciple who said, I'm not sure he rose from the dead. I'll believe it when I see it, when I can put my hand on the wounds and I can feel the, the holes in his, in his wrist and I, where the nails were and feel the wound in his side. Then I'll believe he was raised from the dead. That was Thomas. That's the context of this remark. Th Thomas said that classic example, a foot in mouth, 
And immediately the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body appeared to him, and I'm sure he wished he'd kept his mouth shut because the Lord said, okay, Thomas, here I am. Feel my hands. Put your hand in my side. I want you to make sure you know that, that I'm here uh, in, a, in a body that is uh, physical. It's not just spiritual. Uh, it's not corporeal. It's incorporeal. But you can, you can feel it. You can see the evidence that's there. See, see, according to a lot of people in modernism, faith is irrational, and it is you don't believe on the basis of evidence. But biblically, faith is always based on evidence. Uh, Jesus came along and gave us evidence. Uh, Luke records in Acts 1 that Jesus appeared to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs. That's part of apologetics. It was something Jesus believed in, and he gave many convincing proofs. He's showing that faith is not apart from evidence or apart from reason, that it, it is completely compatible and is always evidenced in uh, the real world. And so that's the context. And after John describes this in John 20, he said, and truly Jesus did many other signs, that is, other than the eight he's uh, given in the gospel, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these what? These signs. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying that I've given you eight signs, eight miracles that Jesus performed that is more than convincing proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Messiah. And all in this verse you have the classic phrase that John uses many times. He doesn't use the phrase every time he uses the verb believe, but many times he does. He combines the verb believe with the, the prepositional phrase, in him, ace autan. You believe in him, you believe in his name, which uh, name usually refers to his character, his identity as Jesus the Messiah. And so salvation is based on belief, not inviting Jesus into your heart. But there are a lot of people, I believe, who are saved because uh, God in his grace saves people even when they misinterpret scripture and they're still in their mind they're trusting christ they may get be all confused in certain vocabulary but they are believing in christ Uh, for example in the passage we're studying when we get to verse 14 i'll tell you a little bit more about the story but one of the most famous early church fathers was a guy that protestants call uh, augustine and catholics call augustine and he was a bishop of Hippo in North Africa, and he was uh, quite a rebellious, immoral uh, person before he was saved. He went through a period of searching, looking for uh, truth about God. One day he was outside of a church in, um, I believe it was in Milan, but it was definitely in Italy, and he heard a voice that said, pick up and read, and there was uh, scripture there, and he picked it up, like a lot of Christians, where am I going to read? Oh, I'll open it here and I'll look at the first verse. The first verse he read was Romans thirteen fourteen, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Has nothing to do with salvation, but that's how Augustine got saved. Read that verse. That was a verse that that got him got him saved. I, I, sometimes I've thought about teaching a whole series on 
verses that have nothing to do with salvation that God used to bring very famous uh, believers, theologians, pastors uh, to salvation because they didn't interpret it correctly. But that's no justification for misusing and misinterpreting Scripture. The key is to believe. John 2.11, taking us back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, the first sign, the beginning of signs Jesus did when he changed the water into wine. This was the first miracle. John says this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. Pistuo ace autan. That's the key phrase that John uses again and again and again. He doesn't say they invited Jesus into their life. He doesn't say they committed themselves to Jesus. He doesn't say that they walked the aisle, raised their hand, got baptized again and again. Ninety-eight times in John, he emphasizes believe. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, as you read through John 2, we move from the northern area in Galilee where Jesus is uh, performed the first miracle, and he goes down to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, he's going to perform a number of unspecified miracles. John 2.23 reads, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, Pistuo Ace Autan, believed in him adds onomas here for his name. They believed in his name. Same phrase John uses again and again and again. If you just read that, what do you come away with? They they did what John says to do in order to, to be saved, in order to have eternal life. And they, they, and they did it because they saw the signs which he did. Now, something interesting happens. Jesus knew all these people believed in him, but he doesn't trust them, not because they're not saved, but because they haven't been taught yet. They're still holding on to a view of the Messiah as a political deliverer and not as a spiritual redeemer. And because they have a political agenda, uh, which isn't his agenda, he's not going to entrust himself to them, not because they're not believers. Now, you have a lot of superficial believers today who think that, oh, I want to find a doctor, I want to find a mechanic, I want to find some, so-and-so who's a, who's a Christian. That's fine. I don't care where somebody's going to end up in heaven. I just want the best cardiologist. I want the best auto mechanic. I want the person to be able to fix whatever my problem is, and maybe I'll end up witnessing to them. Maybe they're already saved, but their spiritual status has nothing to do with their current real-time capabilities and um, and talents. And so... We can trust an unbeliever to fix your car. You may not be able to trust a believer to fix your car. He may say, oh, I've got another one of these Christians uh, who just trusts me because I'm a Christian and I can do a sloppy job. And there are a lot of Christians out there who actually think that way because they're not walking with the Lord. So, But then you get a problem today with, with people who believe in lordship salvation who come along and they say, see... These people weren't really saved. And they use this. This is the example they use over and over again. I don't care how 
where do they fall on the academic scale, whether there's somebody who's as astute as Dr. John MacArthur or whether there's somebody who's uh, just, just got a church education in some small country church. They all go to this passage and say, this, see, this is an example of a faith that really isn't a genuine faith because if it was genuine, Jesus would entrust himself to them. But that's not what it says. If language means anything, these people are all saved. It has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus would trust himself to them. He still knew they were sinners, and he still knew they had a wrong agenda. Now, if we go into John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And I've often said when I've taught John 3 that at some point in John 3, Jesus quits talking and John starts talking. But we don't really know where that occurs. I think it occurs in verse 16, but that's just my opinion. I think that Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus, giving him an Old Testament example in verses 14 and 15. There's a repetition of the phrase, whoever believes in him, in verse 16. I think verse 16, and when John, as the writer, adds his editorial explanation in verse 16 of what Jesus says in, in 14 or 15. That's just my, my uh, opinion of this. But there's debate as to when it happens because John was very young. John was 18 or 19 when he started uh, as a disciple to Jesus. And like many 18 or 19 years old, uh, year olds, he is very impressionable and very impressed by the Lord. And he learns everything he can from the Lord, and he emulates his speaking style. And I think this is true because if you read John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17 on into the high priestly prayer, that's Jesus speaking. But if you take, if you read that in the Greek, and then you read John's first epistle, they are so similar. It's like the same person is talking. And, and you know people like this. You, you've been exposed to young pastors who, when they first start uh, teaching or preaching, they've been impressed by some seminary professor or some pastor, and they sound very much like that pastor. It's no different from any other profession. You learn from the best, and initially you emulate that person as you are learning, but eventually you develop your own style, your own personality, and your own skills. So the Old Testament example is from the event in, uh, in the wilderness, in the desert, when the Israelites were coming under divine discipline, and God sent a bunch of fiery serpents among them. Their bite was fatal, and many, many thousands were dying. And God gave them a solution, which was for Moses to raise up a, a brass or bronze serpent and all people had to do, I think this is such a great example of faith, all they had to do was look at that bronze serpent. They're not committing to the bronze serpent. They're not inviting the bronze serpent into their life. They're not raising their hand and waving at the bronze serpent. They're just looking at the bronze serpent. They don't have to have a complete theological understanding uh, of the bronze serpent. They don't have to have an understanding of metallurgy and bronze and brass and everything else that goes into it. They don't have to have a, a degree in uh, herpetology and they don't have to know everything there is to know about snakes. They just have to know that God said, look at the uh, bronze serpent and you'll be saved. And they look and boom, they're, they're, they're physically healed. 
instantly. That's a great picture of the gospel. All a person has to do is basically look to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and they're saved. And so Jesus says, whoever believes in him, again, it's pistuo ace. And in in John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, pistuo ace, atan, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so this is what uh, Paul is describing at the end of verse 11 when we first believed, when we first trusted in Christ, when we first understood the gospel. Now, I want to come back next time and talk a little bit more about, about faith, but we'll just stop there tonight and come back and set that up, and then that will prepare us for the next three verses. Father, thank you for our helping us to understand these things tonight, to focus on the simplicity of faith. But yet there's so much to discuss and understand and and meditate on as we understand uh, that is simply by faith in Christ, believing he is who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do, and that is to die on the cross for our sins. Father, help us to understand that life is about grace. Life is about trusting in you, focusing on eternal realities, and not becoming distracted by the details of life today, but our focus on eternal things, that we might live today in light of eternity, recognizing that as each minute goes by, we're one minute closer to the return of our Lord and our meeting with him face to face. Now, Father, we uh, ask that you give us uh, safety on our way home tonight, help us to think through the things we've studied, and that they might uh, strengthen us, encourage us, and motivate us and our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.